Hello and welcome to The Energy Gang, a discussion show about the fast-changing world of energy. I'm Ed Crooks. Nuclear will need to be better at deploying on time and on budget. Even if those budgets are high, even if those timelines are long, it is going to be worth it and it's going to be investable. Yeah, it's cool to say that one kilowatt hour is really cheap. That's great. I care about the bill that comes to my house or my business, which is a function of all the kilowatt hours that have to be put on the grid to have 24-7 reliable power. One of the first challenges I had was explaining that nuclear waste was a problem. And although it's not a radiological safety problem to the public, it is a social problem, a political one. Now, we've got something a bit different for you today. A single show all about one subject. We've had a lot of feedback from listeners telling us we ought to be talking more about nuclear power and its role in the transition to a net zero energy system. And on this show, we're nothing if we're not responsive to our listeners. So that's exactly what we're going to do today. We have an entire show dedicated to discussing the issues around nuclear power. And to talk about those issues, I'm very pleased to welcome back our old friend Melissa Lott, who's the Director of Research at the Centre on Global Energy Policy at Columbia University. Hello, Melissa. Welcome back. Hey, Ed. Good to see you. I'm so glad you recovered. And I am thrilled that we're about to have this conversation. It's uh, I've been anticipating it, so I'm, I'm just excited to be here today. Yeah, very much looking forward to it. And thanks very much for holding the fort on the last show. Great show. Really uh, enjoyed listening to that one. And as well as Melissa, it's my pleasure to welcome two very special guests onto the show this week. We are joined today by Katie Huff, who's an Assistant Secretary and Head of the Office of Nuclear Energy at the Department of Energy. Hello, Katie. Thanks very much for taking the time to talk to us today. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited. And we're also joined by Carl Perez, who's the chief executive of a nuclear engineering company called Exodus Energy. Hi, Carl. Thanks very much for joining us. Thank you, Ed, for having me in such a great company. I thought it'd be helpful to do something which we often do on the show, which is talk a bit about the career paths that have led people to the jobs they're in today. And it's particularly interesting, I think, with nuclear power, which perhaps I suppose some people would say is not such a fashionable sector of the energy industry to be working in. I'm really interested to hear how you got into nuclear power, what made you want to work in that field, and how you pursued the role you've got at the moment. I mean, Katie, maybe talk to us about this. How did you get to this job working on nuclear power for the US government? Yeah, well, you know, I was a very happy assistant professor at the University of Illinois doing nuclear engineering research and teaching, and I was lucky enough to get a phone call totally unexpectedly from the Department of Energy suggesting that I could potentially take on this job. So um, I'm grateful to say that I did say yes. I was lucky to have some leadership in DOE who recognized that this is a really exciting time for nuclear energy and that they really need someone at the front lines of the war against the climate crisis. And what led you to nuclear engineering in the first place? When you were in high school or in college, what made you think nuclear is what I want to do? Sure. Yeah. I mean, the first engineer I ever met was my mom, right? And and or she was a mechanical engineer and she worked in power systems for General Electric. And so it's the most natural thing in the world to think of engineering as a possible career path. My dad worked in as a welder and a pipe fitter for the oil industry and then eventually got his mechanical engineering degree. So energy was really a topic at the dinner table, a lot like a kind of 90s version of the Energy Gang podcast. And so it was natural for me to care about energy, but I was fascinated by physics. So I got an undergraduate degree in physics from the University of Chicago. Probably in part because I read The Making of the Atomic Bomb by Richard Rhodes, which I encourage anyone to read. It's a true masterpiece. Um, But then, you know, 
my interest in engineering and my excitement about physics combined with my concern for the climate really presented one clear option for my career, which is, you know, pursuing nuclear energy. Got it. So what about you, Cole? How did you get into the nuclear business? So uh, as, as, as usual, you know, we have a discussion with our parents, uh, as, as you know, Secretary Huff just mentioned, and I have to say mine was quite the, the opposite. In fact, uh, I was getting the, the lecture on how nuclear energy was bad. Uh, and my father uh, basically protested against the construction of nuclear power plants in France uh, at, at Crémalville. And it was, it was interesting because all the arguments uh, around why not, um, ultimately over time, I, I realized that you just cannot ignore 24-7 carbon-free power. And so kind of switching over to my career path, when I was uh, at, at school in undergrad, I uh, was studying social entrepreneurship and really wanted to make a dent in the energy sector. And once more, 24-7 carbon-free power cannot be forgotten in that debate. And so even myself being anti-nuclear had to re-question my, my assumptions. And uh, it's upon learning more about what's been done in the 50s and 60s that I evolved my opinion. And so how are your relations with your father now? Has he forgiven you? Actually, he's become pro-nuclear. Oh, wow. You've, you've talked him around. Yes, yes. He, he, he realized that it was more being anti-institutional than being anti-nuclear back in the day. And Melissa, you cover all kinds of energy now at Columbia, but you've spent a lot of your career in the nuclear business as well, haven't you? Yeah, I mean, my entry into energy was electricity. And uh, I can remember when I first started, I mean, nuclear power was something I, I knew existed. Studied in physics in high school, you know, you, you knew it was a thing. But it was when I was at UT Austin and I, I was looking at the different classes I could take and Professor Steve Bukowski was there and we have this Triga Mark II nuclear research reactor right there. I got to, you know, hit the button, make the announcements, all of that. I just, I was sitting there looking at the uh, technical electives I could take and I thought if I'm going to do power, I should understand how nuclear works. And uh, if I've got these great professors there, I know Mark Dinert was there at the time. He's now in Colorado, I think these days. Um, I should take advantage of this. And so I took the courses. And I'm glad I understand the technical underpinnings of it. And I've been able to apply that as I've looked at power sector decarbonization as a big part of my career. Thanks very much. So fantastic backgrounds, all of you, to have this discussion. One of the main reasons that we thought it was particularly worthwhile having a special edition on nuclear is there really seems to be a resurgence of interest in nuclear power around the world right now. If you look at recent legislation in the US and what's been done there in terms of tax breaks, credit support for nuclear power. If you look at what's happening in some European countries, not all, but some, if you look at uh, France and the UK, for instance, pressing ahead with new reactors. If you look even at Japan, which obviously has uh, a very troubled relationship with nuclear power in the wake of the Fukushima disaster of 2011. But even in Japan, they're talking about investing in a new generation of advanced nuclear reactors as a very important part of their energy future. It seems that in the wake of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, soaring natural gas prices that we've had, concern about energy security really rising right to the top of the agenda in so many places around the world, put the focus very much back on reliable, dependable sources of supply, which nuclear on the whole is, not always, and perhaps we might come on to some of the reasons why it isn't always entirely reliable. And France obviously has got quite a, a troubled experience with that in the past year or so. But on the whole, it's fair to say that nuclear is a reliable, dependable source of electricity. And it's also a low carbon, zero carbon source. And at the same time, everyone's worrying about energy security. People have absolutely not stopped worrying about climate change, the need to decarbonize the world economy. And so it seems like increasingly 
people are coming to look again at nuclear as a really important source of reliable zero carbon power. As you were just saying, Cole, that 24-7 zero carbon electricity that everybody needs. So that seems to be the backdrop of this kind of global resurgence in interest. I'm interested in your thoughts about how you see that. I mean, do you think I've characterised the situation broadly accurately? Katie, what do you think? Do you think we are seeing a global nuclear renaissance, if you like? Yeah, absolutely. You know, that word has a specific sort of connotation for folks my particular age. You know, we got into the nuclear energy world in the first renaissance that never really panned out. But I absolutely think there's a resurgence. You've noted all of the ways that I would say are really critical. The increased attention on the like quantifiable impacts of various energy technologies on our fight against the climate crisis and on our you know other things that are valued by people and communities i think those quantifiable impacts are being better understood by the public now than they once were you know there it's a very quantitatively sophisticated public out there on the internet now and people want to see the statistics they want to see the receipts and nuclear energy looks really great when you think about the things you mentioned like reliability energy density energy security land use materials use you know lifetime emissions and and even cost right because of their incredibly long lifetimes and you know stable uh, high capacity factor power production nuclear reactors really stack up nicely against other energy sources. And because we care about clean energy now more as a society, as a critical sort of existential threat, we worry about emissions. Uh, Nuclear energy has an incredible role to play. And I think people are recognizing that in a more mature and sophisticated way. Cole, what do you think? Just adding on to that, the advent of, of internet and social media and just much more transparency and information and facts has been super helpful in creating new public advocates you have never seen as many reactor types and companies in development ever. So you definitely see that there's a renaissance, but as the renaissance in the, in the you know, 1400s, 1500s, there's also an associated enlightenment, right? And, and people are truly understanding what are the risks beyond simply the environment, but also energy security and what that means for geopolitical tensions. And there's a clear understanding that if we really want to ease geopolitical strife globally, solving energy dependence or at least security for nations out there is crucial for that first step. And the second thing I'll just add is we now know way more than we knew before, right? Uh, We've had accidents. After Fukushima, there were about $47 billion spent globally in enhancements of nuclear installations to make sure that they abide by these new regulations. So we're also learning. And that's why I think that today we're we're in a prime position to really capitalize on, on nuclear technology that was first conceived in the 50s and 60s. Melissa, what do you think? So I think it's interesting thinking about the 50s and 60s and the conversations that I'm in around nuclear power, which I agree, I'm seeing a huge uptick in the interests and questions around it. And okay, I want to understand more. How could this work when it comes to this whole question of how we get our power systems to net zero? And actually, that might be the clarifying question in my part of this field. Um, We're not talking about a 50% reduction or an 80% reduction anymore. It's net zero. And when you want to do that, and you want to do that quickly in your power sector, because that's the backbone and the leading piece of the drive to net zero, you have to start thinking about firm power. And you've got to think about how that complements energy storage and complements variable renewables. And you don't have a ton of options. Nuclear is one of them. So I see a change in the conversation as a result of that. One of the questions and why I'm, I'm Carl, I love the 50s and 60s popped into my brain when you were saying it, is I often get asked, okay, so we're going to do what we did already again. That's what we're talking about, right? I like this conversation about how the future of nuclear, yeah, some of it looks like the past. We're talking about 
vision. You know, we're talking about processes that we have used in the past, but actually the technology that have been developed in the decades since then. I mean, the future of nuclear doesn't look exactly like the past. There's actually some key differences in how we'll build things out in the future. And the second piece that I'll say, Ed, that I see a lot in the work that I do is how different the conversation is actually in some parts of the U.S. versus the international conversation. And Katie, I'm thinking about the U.S.-Poland announcement. Yeah, absolutely. And I don't know if you want to talk about that one at all, but that's a big one that signals, hey, you know, okay, maybe not every community is saying, yeah, nuclear power plant, that's something we can have. But a lot of places are seriously considering it and considering different size reactors, different proportions of their overall energy mix and electricity mix. I mean, I think it's important we differentiate there. It's maybe your community or my community, and it's not on the table for a number of reasons. But in a lot of places, it is a big part of the conversation. Poland's just one example. It's existential for places in Central and Eastern Europe right now where energy, in particular natural gas, have clearly been weaponized. And countries, as a matter of national security, national existence, sovereignty in general, are looking towards energy sources that are going to be both clean and secure. Energy sources that don't require refueling every day, right? Nuclear reactors require refueling once every 18 months, every two years, right? Um, if we're looking at a gigawatt scale plant, it also can supply an incredibly large fraction of a, of a grid, the scale of like Poland or, or other Eastern and Central European nations. And sorry, I missed this announcement about the US-Poland agreement. What's happened? Yeah. So um, there's been an announcement that Westinghouse will be building three, possibly more, AP-1000 reactors in Poland. These will be the first reactors that Poland has built commercially. And they're ready to go with a large set of, you know, three full gigawatts, possibly to expand to six. I was actually going to continue on that point because there's also an interesting announcement, which was Ukraine's Ernago Atom saying that they also want to add two reactors. So we we're just men mentioning Zaporizhia, but Ukraine has just announced that they want to buy two AP-1000s. So it's really interesting to see that even the nations that are, again, Ukraine had Chernobyl. Uh, they're one of the largest consumers of, of nuclear energy in, in Europe, and they're planning on having even more. So I think these signals go in the right direction. Yeah, agreed. No, that, that is really fascinating. I just wanted to jump back to something you said, though, Katie, about those words, nuclear renaissance, which have that somewhat unfortunate connotation. And it feels like probably in the what, the late 2000s, we were talking a lot about that around 2010, the phrase nuclear renaissance got banded around for rather similar reasons to the reasons we're talking about nuclear power today, this appeal of reliable, consistent 24-7 zero carbon power seemed very significant then. And then the Fukushima accident happened in 2011. And that completely knocked that whole thing off course. And you had a lot of pullback from nuclear power what are delays, nuclear plants being shut down, projects being cancelled, and so on. Do you think we've learned lessons from that? Is there a danger that this is going to be sort of yet another false dawn for the nuclear business? Yeah, you know, possibly my favorite author, Sir Terry Pratchett, once wrote that coming back to where you started is not the same as never leaving. And we may be sort of back in this place where there's an incredible amount of optimism about nuclear, there's a recognition that we need more of it, and there's a lot of interest from vendor companies. But we have learned a lot about deploying and meeting those needs. I think, you know, the United States will be turning on two big gigawatt scale units in Georgia, the Vogel units that are the sort of small realization of that renaissance is a very small fraction of what was expected. But we've learned so much in building those plants, learned about making sure that the design is fully complete before it's starting work, making sure that you have enough craftspeople in your region, you know, skilled trade 
workers and craftspeople, union workers, to do the work of electricians and boilermakers and welders and everything that's required construction union labor to actually build a plant. You know, taking a design to an on-the-grid power plant is an incredible endeavor that we haven't done at scale since the sort of decades between the 70s and 90s. And implementing that has taught a lot of lessons that I think we will take forward as we sort of venture out this same path again. I don't think we'll hit the same roadblocks around implementation, meeting you know deadlines and uh, hitting projects on cost and on timeline. So Katie, I want to focus in with you then on the administration strategy and what you're trying to do then at the Department of Energy, what the administration is trying to do more broadly in terms of nuclear development seems to be a lot going on. We've had, as I was saying earlier, two laws passed by Congress, which have additional support for nuclear, both for advanced nuclear, new developments, and for existing nuclear plants. Could you talk a bit about, perhaps maybe explain how it all fits together? You know, What is the administration trying to achieve, and what's the impact of this legislation going to be in supporting the administration's goals? Yeah, Melissa's right. The administration is trying to get to net zero by 2050, and it's going to take nuclear. We've published a number of analyses. The Pathways to Net Zero report from uh, last year out of the White House indicates a number of different ways we could achieve that, but all of them include at least as much nuclear as we have today remaining on the grid in 2050, which means new builds, but possibly also doubling the amount of nuclear we have on the grid today, depending on how much renewables we can enable and how much storage we can enable at grid scale, you know, varies how much nuclear you need to back it up, right? If we don't see the dreams of storage at grid scale realized, then it's going to take a lot more nuclear. And there's a balance here. And it's a very all of the above approach in the Biden administration. We need to get to those key goals, net zero by 2050. And the way that we see this happening, you know, through the bipartisan infrastructure law, the Inflation Reduction Act, we've seen $2.5 billion supporting demonstration reactor cost shares that were started in the Office of Nuclear Energy. One is an advanced reactor that is a sodium-cooled fast reactor that's being built at a retiring coal site in Kemmerer, Wyoming. And one is a high-temperature pebble bed gas-cooled reactor from X Energy called the XE100 that'll be built in the state of Washington. Both of them are 50-50 cost-shared projects intended to sort of complete construction in the decade. And we're in this place where that's what's going to be necessary to get to those goals. 50% reduction in our carbon emissions by 2030, a 100% clean electric grid by 2035, and net zero economy, including all of our other carbon emissions by 2050. I mean, kind of mind-blowing, actually. I mean, leave aside, as you say, you know, everything else is going on with, with renewables and storage and the progress that has to happen there. Just think about the nuclear piece of that. Then so to double the nuclear capacity on the US grid over that term time period. So that's what basically by twenty thirty five you're saying. So twelve years or so now. Is that really achievable? And if so, how? I think we probably can get there by twenty fifty. And the doubling, you know, would be by twenty fifty to get to that net zero. But It is certainly the case that we would have to work as fast as we have ever worked. So between 1970 and 1990, the United States built 95 gigawatts electric of nuclear capacity. And that is precisely the amount that we're going to have to add in order to double 
Plus, we have to either extend the licenses of our existing fleet in such a way that they will make it to 2050. And not all reactors will pass the Nuclear Regulatory Commission's you know, high standards for those license extensions all the way to 100 years. Right? We do expect some reactors will shut down. And so we, we will need to build even more than that 95 gigawatts in the next 25 years. So we have to build them as quickly as we did in the highest rate that we ever have in the United States. But about the same. It's not, not so far out of the realm of possibility because we have done it before. Here's the question I got on this, though. Do you think that the Nuclear Regulatory Commission is fit for purpose for a build-out like this? This is a, a question I know we discuss a lot, and Matt Bowen, who heads our nuclear power program here at, at the center, we discuss a lot, which is if your mandate is safety, you know, what's the safest thing to do? Not build anything, because it can't go wrong if it doesn't exist. I mean, I, and that's a crude way of putting it, but I'm, I'm putting it that directly because it's the idea of... There's so many pieces within this across the entire net zero equation where, you know, permitting and siting and markets aren't structured for the massive infrastructure build out we're talking about when we talk about 2830, 2035. This is not isolated to nuclear, but in nuclear, we have this specific additional piece of the puzzle, which is the NRC. And I, I'm asking, and I'm wondering, and many of us are, is that hurdle one that we're set up to be able to you know, jump over. I'm I'm not a long distance runner, but I'm trying for a visual here, y'all. Um, you know, are we are we going to be able to jump over that hurdle? Are we set up for it? And at some point, y'all, we got to talk about new scale because that just happened <laughs> within the last few days here. But I'm just curious, Katie and Carl and Ed, like what y'all think about that? Yeah, I can start. You know, DOE's role is separate from NRC, and they're an independent agency, and and so Absolutely. I you know I can't comment too much extent, but I will say. My understanding is that NRC recognizes that this is an uphill battle. It's a big challenge and they need additional capacity to meet the moment, but that they, you know, have an intent to make sure that they're moving forward in the most streamlined way possible. You know, there's been a lot of ideas from Congress, but the implementation, I think we're still seeing. Yeah. And Melissa, you just mentioned new scale. And what we've seen just literally this week is that the NRC Nuclear Regulatory Commission has just approved new scales, small modular reactor design, which means they can go ahead and continue development and hopefully get it built. So it's not that nothing is happening. They're not saying no to everything. Obviously, obviously there is some progress being made. And so I think that is a pretty positive sign for the future in terms of the development of new nuclear technologies. I was going to just add one point. The robustness, in fact, of the, the NRC and its guidelines was one of the driving forces for me actually becoming pro-nuclear. And I think that a lot of the other industries ought to replicate actually the level of regulation that we have in the nuclear business, right? We capture every single bit of waste, every single bit of gas that comes out of the reactor. Everything is regulated, right? If we were doing the same for natural gas plants, I think the price of operating a natural gas plant would be different. And I think that more and more regulation is starting to converge in, in that direction without necessarily adding a carbon tax, right? Regulation, I think, is important. And if the rest of the technology starts to align with nuclear as opposed to nuclear going down in regulation, I think we, we would be living in a safer and healthier world. Uh, and on top of that, I think that the real cost of nuclear would be reflected. In addition, we talk about cost and cost overruns. In Finland, you have a 20-year delay almost, but it's still projected to have lower electricity prices. In 2022, their prices were 70 euros a megawatt hour. It's going to be going down to uh, 50 in 2024. So that's almost 40%, uh, which is sizable, including a reduction in dependency on energy. And it's the same as well in, 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 in Georgia. So you're talking about installations that sure cost 20 to $30 billion. Obviously, everything that we're doing in the advanced, sec advanced reactor sector is to lower that number. As we build out more, we'll get more experience. And, and Katie really 
point it at one thing in particular, and it's the reason why in France you have the troubles we have, is we've sent 20 to 30 years of signals to the youth that we're getting out of nuclear. So you cannot be surprised when we no longer have nuclear welders or draftsmen, and, and that's what's happening in France. They're not saying, oh, the reactors are not operational, so let's you know, put in question the technology. What they're saying is two things. First, we cannot keep saying to students that we're not going to be. And that's why, really, Katie was at the forefront as a university professor helping build that workforce, which is single-handedly the most important thing. And then what you also have is the French saying, well, you have all these droughts, so maybe we should be looking at reactors that are not just water-cooled by these bodies. So it, if anything, the reflection is, how do we innovate and how do we promote more education and invest in our youth uh, in nuclear? And one thing I just want to also bring back to the topic about me uh, going pro-nuclear is electricity is 25% of the problem. 75% of the problem is related to heat, liquid fuels. And that's really what made me realize the enormity or at least how big and colossal the challenge ahead of us is. And that's why nuclear is really going to be helpful, at least in providing high temperature heat um, in many of those applications. So there's more electrification, but we're going to need high temperature heat. So we've been talking quite a bit about advanced reactors, new nuclear technologies, mentioned new scale and small modular reactors. I think it might be helpful just to take a moment, perhaps to just think about the different types of reactors and the technologies that we're thinking about and maybe understand which are the most important ones and which are the ones with the greatest promise for the future. I mean, I know, Katie, so when you think about this then at the Department of Energy, you think about advanced nuclear as being kind of the priority in some ways, and that's where the government support is going. But maybe you could break it down for us a little bit what are the most important technologies as you see them? Yeah, it certainly is the case that we're supporting the existing fleet through the tax credits and whatnot from the Inflation Reduction Act through the Civil Nuclear Credit Program. But yeah, if when you think about advanced reactors, there's a few classes, right? There are small modular light water reactors like the new scale design that's just been certified. And that's a you know an example of sort of shrinking the existing technology that it uses similar fuel to the existing fleet at the sort of 5% enrichment level. And it uses similar concepts in safety, but they're smaller, uh, which enables modularity in construction and deployment. That way you're sort of building reactors like airplanes rather than airports, right? You should be able to be rolling components of them or even the whole reactor body off of a, an assembly line, which is not the way we've historically constructed reactors and is part of the reason that those gigawatt scale stick build plants are very expensive to build. Um, so we do really look at those small modular reactors as an opportunity for an improvement in cost and deployability at scale. What we also see is there's decades of learning about other reactor technologies that could give higher benefit in passive safety, in fuel utilization, in high temperatures necessary for that process heat that we are going to have real trouble decarbonizing otherwise. And we see real opportunities in those reactors too. So there's a set of classes of reactors with exotic coolants and fuels. They may be metal coolants like sodium or lead. They may be salt coolants like the clean fluoride lithium beryllium salts. But the fuels are also different. You may have a metal fuel like the terra-powered natrium reactor, or you might have a fuel that is encapsulated into tiny silicon carbide uh, particles. This is called a tristructural isotropic particle, and it's typically embedded in a graphite fuel pellet or a fuel sphere like a pebble. Uh, and those reactors have incredible robustness to temperatures 
that you couldn't, I mean, you really can't melt down a reactor like this because they can withstand incredibly high temperatures well beyond like lava, you know? So we're in a place where those reactors have different applications that can be really useful. Some of them reach incredibly high temperatures, like in the many hundreds of degrees Celsius, that could be very useful as we look towards high efficiency production of hydrogen with high temperature electrolysis or thermochemical cycles. And that kind of high efficiency, high capacity production of hydrogen is going to be essential if we want to get to a hydrogen economy to be the backbone of mobile fuels that require uh, decarbonization as well. So I think, you know, in the context of nuclear, they come in small modular reactor designs, they come in advanced reactor types, and they come in a different set of sizes. You know, there's micros in the tens or less than tens of megawatts scale that you might see replacing diesel generators. You've got small modular and advanced reactors that are in the couple hundred megawatts scale that you might see replacing existing coal plants. And there's still the gigawatt scale reactors, many of which have advanced designs that are more passively safe and walk away safe. And in terms of the timetable for commercial deployment and these different types of technology making a material difference to power generation in the US and around the world and to emissions, is it really these, so obviously the existing technologies are available to be deployed right away, just as long as you can get them built. Small modular reactors, from what you're saying, are the closest to being deployable, is that right? And All these other technologies, all the more advanced, sophisticated, complex things you're talking about, different materials, different fuels, how soon are any of those realistically to being deployed? Is this all sort of 2030 and beyond type of stuff, or is there anything that could be sooner than that? So if successful, we have three DOE cost-shared projects that will build commercial nuclear plants in the United States. One is a six-pack of new-scale reactors that's targeting the end of the decade. Another is the TerraPower Natrium Reactor, again, targeting around 2030, possibly a little bit later, depending on risks around fuel. And a third is the X-Energy XE100 High Temperature Gas Reactor, again, targeting, you know, around the end of this decade. And those three cost-shared projects are going to be commercial on the grid when they reach their deadlines, all around that 2030 timeframe. And so we're really looking at all those types of reactors being, you know, in the commercial sector by then. The real challenge is, you know, the ones that will move fast enough in the scaling sense are the ones that are going to be building up their order books today. You know, we have others just in the wings that could be dark horses, right? You've got GE BWRX 300, Holtec 160. You know, there's a lot of opportunities there. And abroad, you know, there's interest. uh, Rolls-Royce has a design, right? We have competition on the international side, but, you know, in the United States, that design certification from NRC for New Scale really matters as we think about who has made it past some of the key milestones. When you look also at the small modular reactors, like for example, uh, New Scale, they have small modular reactors, right? So that's basically IAEA caps a small modular reactor at 300 megawatts electric. But that was largely based on solid fueled reactors. And, and as I may have hinted a bit earlier, I have worked on a liquid fueled reactor. Really what we did recently with Exodus is actually focus on the more near-term issue of fuel, which Katie was referring to. And obviously HALU accessibility is, and that's high SI, low enriched uranium, uranium that's enriched between five and 99%. And one of the things we realized as molten salt experts is that molten salts are also used for recycling nuclear fuel. And so what we decided to do is actually just more so focus on providing HALU for the rest of the sector and specifically the metal as feedstock to the potential manufacturers of oxide metallic fuel. And really what we thought is if we really want to accelerate nuclear deployment, let's try to make sure that we can be an enabling platform. So that's just on where we are. But to continue on that point of SMRs, 
I mean, you know, technology readiness levels vary by region, right? Whether you're in France and Japan and depending on the technologies. In fact, in a couple of weeks, China is going to be starting up their liquid fueled molten salt reactor in, in the Wubei province. So what's really interesting is seeing that by market, you have different views on what is going to be the more important technology. Just taking a, a step back, if you also look at the order book, most of the reactor orders that are happening right now in Europe, whether it's Poland or are usually for gigawatt scale reactors. And one of the things that we did early on when we were looking at the nuclear renaissance, because that was a first attempt in the early 2000s, is we wanted to make sure that we were designing a product for the customers. And it's by speaking with customers that we kind of realized that they did want larger outputs. And just one last point on the large outputs. What's super important to not forget is the Vogel facility has two other reactors on it, which also helps pay for the construction of the two new ones. In essence, if you add a reactor at every site, you won't have to build any new site in the United States and you can add 100 gigawatts of power. And that is really something that we cannot neglect. The very first thing I want to do is a quick sidebar on Helu, just so everyone knows what we're talking about, high SA, low enriched uranium. What is it and why is it important? Yeah, so as you make fission happen, it usually happens with particular isotopes that tend to fission most easily. These are uranium-233, uranium-235, some of the plutonia, mostly odd numbers. And uranium-235 is the natural isotope of uranium that we enrich. So it's a very tiny fraction of natural uranium, but we turn it into a gas and spin it around in centrifuges until we get the isotopic ratio close to 5% U-235, with the remainder being U-238, the other most common natural isotope. That is what is usually in a standard light water reactor across the existing fleet. For more compact designs with longer fuel lifetimes, more fuel utilization, we can get better efficiencies out of nuclear reactors if we bump that number up to close to 20%. Beyond 20%, you start to get into some nonproliferation concerns. And so we keep commercial under 20%, but that high assay, low enriched uranium is actually just a fancy way of saying high enrichment, low enrichment uranium. <laughs> like this is like slightly higher enriched, low enriched uranium. You know, so some people will call this like low assay, low enriched uranium for 5% and high assay, low enriched uranium for 20%. But, you know, we're really just talking about 5% enriched uranium and 20% enriched uranium. And that 20% doesn't have a commercial supplier at the scale we would need to spin out our advanced reactor deployments anywhere in the world except for Russia. That is the only commercial scale supplier in the world for high assay, low enriched uranium. So this is of critical importance to the expansion of advanced reactors like Natrium and X-Energy and, and many others that will rely on HALU. Right. So that seems to me to be a really crucial point. Then if given the context, everything we've been talking about is about the importance of nuclear power as a solution for energy security and something that's going to provide reliable zero carbon power issues that have been absolutely brought to the top of the agenda by Russia's invasion of Ukraine. If, in fact, the world is hugely dependent on Russia for nuclear fuel, Russia, I think, has got something like 45% of all the world's uranium enrichment capacity. How much is nuclear really a secure way of generating electricity? As you say, you don't have to refill the plants as regularly as you do a coal-fired power plant a gas-fired power plant, but even so, you need supplies of fuel into those plants. And if you're dependent on Russia for those supplies, that seems to me to be a huge problem. Am I right to think that? I mean, is it as big of a problem as it sounds? And if it is a problem, how do you get around it? 
Yeah, it's a huge problem. About 20% of the enriched uranium that we use to feed our existing fleet in the United States is Russian enriched, right? And we would really like to get back to a place where the United States can at least fill its own needs uh, from trusted suppliers. In order to do that, it'll take an investment in our fuel cycle and potentially import restrictions. But we're in a place ultimately where the most important thing will be investments in that fuel cycle that expand the existing capacity for enrichment here in the United States and among our allies. That thankfully is a sort of slow moving process because of those slow fuel cycles. And because of the very small amounts, you know, you can store large amounts of inventory of nuclear fuel in a way that is less just in time as like the natural gas or other petroleum markets, for example. Nuclear reactors can store, you know, many years of fuel on site, which makes them very energy secure. Other components of their energy security include those containment buildings, which make them quite robust. And, you know, they're very high capacity factors in the 92 percent range. But ultimately, that fuel question really does need to be solved by a strategy for supplying fuel cycle in the United States or amongst our Western allies. We're working towards that in DOE. We've, you know, it takes engagement with Congress to find the appropriate funding to support that. But they have already supported some high assay, low enriched uranium investments that'll result in a request for proposals in the coming weeks or months. Right. Got it. And so, Carl, and that's something you think that you can contribute to at Exodus Energy, right? Is yes. helping with yes. the supply of nuclear fuel. We really want to contribute to this. There are three ways of making HALU, right? It's either you're enriching uranium, you're either downblending a high uh, <laughs> you know, weapons grade material type fuel, and in the middle, there is that option of using the 90,000 tons of spent nuclear fuel in the United States. Basically, nuclear reactors, for the audience who aren't familiar, consume about 5% of its fuel. So about 95% of it still hasn't been used. And so what's really interesting is if you actually repurpose those 90,000 tons, you're talking about centuries of energy independence, right? In France, they recycle. In the United States, we don't, but we're working on it. There have been enormous investment in DOE programs like ARPA-E to be able to solve that. So really, they've been proactive on trying to repurpose these 90,000 tons of fuel. I really don't like to call it waste because we see it as fuel, but in the world, there's about 400,000 tons. So I love this discussion about all the different technologies and different types of fuels, the different ways that different countries are ready to or not ready to adopt different technologies, what we're seeing in the U.S. and outside of the U.S., One of the things I would really love to dive into before we run out of time are the concerns that people have about nuclear power. And it goes back to something I said earlier, actually, about the future not looking like the past nuclear power. And I'm not going to recap the great safety records or any of that stuff. I'm just saying when people look at the future of nuclear, often I run into these conversations where they think it's a replication of the past. And with these new technologies, how do they or do they address some of the biggest concerns that people do have around what having nuclear power means. So if we could touch on that, I think it's an important part of this conversation. I would love to come back to a comment that Carl made about his dad being anti-institutional rather than anti-nuclear. And I think this comes and points directly at a concern about nuclear that is rooted in distrust of large institutions, particularly large, you know, utilities or large companies that make big engineering projects or the Department of Energy itself. Trust is absolutely critical in our ability to build this out. The Nuclear Regulatory Commission provides trust. Their incredibly high standards worldwide provides trust internationally. But we also have to make good on our promises. And in the Department of Energy, for example, spent nuclear fuel is one of those promises. We are 
legally required to begin, you know, taking spent fuel from the sites where it currently sits and waits for a final destination. And, you know, during the time in my office, we've been able to restart a process for consent-based siting of an interim storage facility that would reduce the number of those interim storage facilities across the country. You know, there's many of them at the sites where that fuel is generated, and we like there to be a single consolidated one or maybe a couple, but we need to find a site that recognizes and centers the energy justice inherent in that. So I would touch on the trust that we need to meet for nuclear spent fuel management in the United States. And that's on me. And we're taking it very seriously in my office. And I hope we're starting to rebuild some of that trust. But I would say it is infiltrated throughout many questions people have about nuclear reactors. Even just the cost overruns are a matter of trust. Do you trust a company to meet the cost and schedules that they've promised the public utility commissions, for example? It's about trust. Yeah, I'm actually having a flashback really quick on just that comment. And I remember it was, I believe, Steph Spears who said this at the Aspen Ideas Festival last summer that I was talking about. She said that, I'm going to paraphrase, you can find the direct quote online at the video of the event, but it was that these things move at the speed of trust. Like, that's the core of this. So I just, I'm hearing it in what you say, Katie. And actually something you said earlier, Carl, about regulation. And just to give a little more background, Ed, I didn't say this earlier, but I grew up in a Navy family. Admiral Rickover is like childhood stories to me (laughs) and the nuclear Navy. I mean, I grew up on that stuff, but I thought of nuclear as being this thing in a submarine, you know, and then I became a power plant, you know, more aware person around power plants later. But I just think that phrase I keep coming back to, it's not just with nuclear, but I think it certainly applies here. But Carl, I'm I'm sure you want to jump in on this topic too. Thank you, Melissa. I think trust is super important, but also the messengers. And what you're seeing much more of is these public advocacy groups that are grassroots movement. None of them are paid for by the utilities or anything. These are just concerned citizens. Mm -hmm. I mean, I see it here in New York. Thanks to Nuclear New York, NYSERDA finally decided to include advanced nuclear, right? So what's also interesting is I think we spend a lot of time as an industry and myself, admittedly, trying to say, well, what you think of the passive nuclear is not actually what you think it is. And I think we should try to, and I'm and obviously opinion, but stop trying to focus on saying, let's agree on the past and let's agree on the future, right? Let's agree on what we want nuclear to look like together, right? And that was really the focus of what we tried to do when I, as an undergrad at 21 years old, tell myself, hey, let me start a nuclear energy company. What emboldens me in that moment is when I start learning about a scientist like Dr. Alvin Weinberg, who was at the head of Oak Ridge and was one of the first environmentalists talking about carbon in the air and how problematic it is before so many other people were discussing it. And him saying, we should better utilize our resources. And so he was one of the co-inventors of the light water reactor and the Monsar reactor. So obviously where I had my passion for the Monsar reactor. But when you start looking at the technology and you start looking at the people beyond just Alvin Weinberg, Eugene Wigner, and so many other engineers, When you add that personality and that humanity to it, you realize, okay, these are people who really want to do the right thing and were willing to take the risk because at the time, those rates and working in those labs was not the same thing as working in the labs today. And they were willing to take those life risks to make sure that we have a good future. Yeah, no, that is a great point. I always think about one of the best lines on this I've ever heard was from the chief executive of Electricity de France, who was talking about France's nuclear program. And he said, all countries have different endowments of natural resources. Saudi Arabia has a lot of oil. Scotland has a lot of wind. California has a lot of sun. In France, we have a public that's happy with the idea of nuclear power. That's our natural resource. And that's what we have to build on, which uh, was very funny and said it at a conference, got a big laugh in the room. There is something to it. But also, as you've been saying, it's not a fixed endowment. 
people can change their minds, people can be persuaded. I think the polls always are highly unclear on nuclear power, and it depends a lot, you know, how you ask the question and so on. But it does seem to be the case that there has been a shift in general in public opinion in the United States and some other countries to being more pro-nuclear over the past decade or so. Certainly there was a huge setback after Fukushima. Just for the messengers, France, what they also did, which really changed the opinion in the recent two, three years, is they're injecting 1 billion euros into their nuclear industry for innovation. And more than half of that is destined to create a private sector because they see that in the United States there's a private sector and that we're all competing on price. And so utilities are looking at different costs. They're doing due diligence. And that's really what's helping the innovation move forward because we're all pushing each other to progress. And I think France, because of its very nationalized nuclear industry, coming back to anti-institutionalism, that was the reigning factor. In fact, three years ago, when they did a poll on nuclear, 60% of French people thought that nuclear energy generated carbon emissions. That's amazing. One thing I worry about at a particular moment is, of course, the situation at Zaporozhizhia in Ukraine. When you've been talking about, as you say, Poland, Ukraine, other countries in Central and Eastern Europe being very interested in new nuclear development, because of the energy security benefits that they see. The situation in Zaporozhizhia is really quite alarming, it seems to me, if you look at the recent statements from the International Atomic Energy Agency. They've been saying it's very important that the site be kept secure to avoid what could be a very serious problem there. And issues both with getting power supplies on the site, maintain cooling systems and so on, and potentially with damage. There's been missiles and shelling kind of around the plant Quite a lot. There's been some quite intense fighting in that region over the past couple of weeks. Katie, maybe get specifically your thoughts on this and how the administration is thinking about this. Is this something which is a particular concern? How worrying do you think that situation in Zaporozhizhia is right now? Yeah, it's an unacceptable situation. No country should turn a nuclear power plant into an active war zone. Combat operations in the vicinity of any nuclear plant are dangerous, they're irresponsible, they're unnecessary. Nuclear reactors are incredibly safe, but, you know, are not designed to withstand a targeted military assault. And, you know, the heightened risks of a nuclear incident at ZAP are the result of Russia's unprovoked invasion. And, you know, they've controlled a dangerous military presence at that site, and they've been unwilling to turn control back to Ukraine for safe and secure operations. They've damaged power lines in the vicinity, which increased the likelihood of a loss of offsite power event, which we have seen many times over the course of this invasion. And that kind of loss of offsite power event, if extended, can increase the likelihood of the reactor failing to cool itself and therefore causing a meltdown, which is then a problematic situation for the reactor. Now, we haven't seen that transpire because of the heroic efforts of folks repairing those transmission lines. But what it really draws out is a couple of things. One, it's just not acceptable. But two, when we look at the future of nuclear power in Ukraine, as you noted earlier, there's interest from Ukraine in building more nuclear. And the designs that they would likely select are going to leverage some of the passive safety features that would allow longer periods of walkaway safety in the event of a loss of offsite power event. So for example, the Westinghouse AP1000 has 72 hours after a sort of the beginning of such an event where you don't have to do anything. There's no human intervention required at all. And even after that 72-hour period, the human intervention is extremely minimal. And so you really are in this place where we've learned over many decades what to do to design reactors that are robust, even to that totally unacceptable situation. 
Yeah, that is also a really interesting point. So um, I want to wrap up soon, but before I do, just interested in everybody's uh, final thoughts. I suppose we've got a lot of ground here in this discussion, but I want to go back right to our starting point about resurgence of interest in nuclear power and uh, the fact that there is a lot of emphasis now being placed on the importance of increased investment and development of nuclear power, both existing technologies and new technologies, in order to provide reliable 24-7 zero-carbon electricity. I'm interested in all your thoughts on, are we going to get that? Are we going to get the kind of growth in nuclear power that we need to get on that path to net zero emissions around the middle of the century? And if we are going to get that, what does it take to put us on that path? And what are the maybe one or two critical developments, the building blocks that really need to be put in place in order to achieve that? bright future for nuclear that we all think is needed. Katie, what are your thoughts? How do you see the future of nuclear? I'm an eternal optimist, and I do think that it's going to take every sector scaling up at an incredible revolutionary historic pace in order for us to meet this climate crisis, right? Nuclear will need to be better at deploying on time and on budget, even if those budgets are high, even if those timelines are long, it is going to be worth it and it's going to be investable. But it's going to take trillions of dollars of private capital investing in clean energy technologies to get us to our climate crisis mitigations that we need to get to to get to net zero by 2050. And that's certainly true in nuclear. But I think, you know, the American public has built a lot of nuclear all at once and we, we can do it again. Thanks very much indeed. So, Melissa, what do you think? What is the future of nuclear? So when it comes to the future of nuclear, I, th I think back to the, you know, what the research is telling us about the need for firm dispatchable power if we want to get our electricity to zero, which is so vital if we want to get our economy to zero. I also think back to, I think I've, I've people who listen to the show have heard me talk about the three buckets of technologies and how you need the variable renewables, the energy storage, and the firm dispatchable power to keep the cost of electricity low. You take any one of those buckets out and a net zero future gets really expensive. And this is this is something that is I just such an important point, because at the end of the day, yeah, it's cool to say that one kilowatt hour is really cheap. That's great. I care about the bill that comes to my house or my business, which is a function of all the kilowatt hours that have to be put on the grid to have 24 seven reliable power. So I do think that we're leaning into that part of the equation more and nuclear is coming up more in that and nuclear certainly the cost numbers we're seeing especially with a lot of these new technologies are, are impressive and the inflation reduction act has also been i would say a bit of a game changer in this as well pushing that further but we knew before that happened that firm dispatchable power things like nuclear you take them out of the equation and you see the bill to your home go up a lot jesse jenkins you know is a leader in this and showing us in the research etc but just a really important point so what i think in terms of the future of nuclear is two things when you talk about existing reactors i think we're already seeing the ships turn when it comes to acknowledgement of hey we might really want to keep these reactors on line longer if we can do it safely and we have certification processes for figuring out when we can do that because um, we got to stop digging the hole deeper if we want to get to net zero um 
But the second thing around these new technologies, I'll just go back to, I think you said it, Katie, Steph Spears said it, but it's, I think how well nuclear and other technologies do is going to depend on how effectively we engage with communities. The communities are going to house these technologies, that are going to live with these technologies, that are going to use electricity from these technologies, how effectively we bring people together at a table and have a conversation and really address the questions and concerns that are out there and say, okay, I hear and I understand what your concern is. Let's talk it out. Carl, it's your dad. Let's talk through this. Let's understand it. Those types of things. If we do that really well, the sky's the limit. If we don't, you know, the future looks different. So obviously it is the present. Uh, if you look at Lazard's recent numbers, nuclear and especially refurbished nuclear power plants and whose life uh, has been extended are actually one of the cheapest source of, of electricity uh, in the United States at $29 a megawatt hour. So even today, it's playing a very predominant role. It's over 50% of, uh, of, our, of our carbon free energy. And just to give you an example, in New York, we shut down Indian Point Energy Center, which were which is a nuclear uh, power facility, our prices have skyrocketed. We've built two new natural gas plants and upgraded a third one. We have created emissions where they were not. And so uh, I'm, I'm hoping that in the future, uh, more, more states, countries keep fighting and, and, and keep pushing for nuclear investment. And frankly, we just need to focus on keeping our, our head down as an industry and, and facing these conversations and being very transparent with them. One of the first challenges I had was explaining that nuclear waste was a problem. And although it's not a radiological safety problem to the public, it is a social problem, a political one. And so it's very important, one, to have these conversations. Uh, and two, uh, just, just keep on investing in this technology. And, and it's going to be a long-term investment. Many of the countries that are benefiting from nuclear, we're looking at 20-year programs. So we cannot look for immediate gratification when it comes to these type of decisions. Thanks very much. Those are some great points to end on. Unfortunately, I think we really do have to leave our conversation there. It's been wonderful talking to you all. I've learned an enormous amount. I hope the audience has really enjoyed it too. Just got to say thanks very much to all of you for coming along and taking part. Thanks very much, Katie. Thanks for having me. Thank you, Carl. Thank you so much, Ed and, and, and Katie and Melissa for, for a really lively and, and fun conversation. Yeah, absolutely. And thanks very much to you, Melissa. Yeah, it's great to be here today. Um, Ed, Katie, Carl, I'm so glad we got to do this. Ed, after talking about it for how many months? Exactly, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, we've been promising it for nine months. Great to finally do it, as you say. Thanks very much indeed also to our producer, Toby Viggins-Gilchrist. And most of all, of course, many thanks to all of you for listening. This show came out of suggestions from listeners. We're always keen to hear your thoughts. Ideas for future shows. Tell us what's the next special edition we should be producing find us on social media you can find us on twitter at, at the energy gang i'm at ed underscore crooks i'm also now on mastodon as at ed crooks at mastodon.energy so if you want to get in touch with me on either of those platforms you can do and please do keep the ideas coming and we'll be back again in two weeks for all the latest news and views on what's next for the energy transition until then goodbye <laughs>